Welcome to a new weekly podcast series, Cooking the Books, with me, Julie Smith, about books in which food is the story. Each week, I'll find out what puts the meat on the bones of our literary life with authors across the genres picking at the food in the plots. This week, I'm with new voice in adult fiction, Kieran Millwood Hargrave, award-winning author of The Girl of Ink and Stars, whose brand new novel, The Mercies, is the breathtakingly stark story of intimacy and tenderness in the darkest of tragedies. I met her at the beginning of her press tour to ask how it felt to be finally writing for grown-ups. Incredibly exciting and thank you for being my first appointment. Oh, it's lovely pleasure. to be here oh. and it's really exciting especially to be talking about food because I've come from a children's book background and they say that food replaces sex in children's books. Really? So <laughs> I've always loved writing about food and I knew that there were going to be lots of important food moments in The Mercies. So unpack that a little bit. That's terribly interesting. So what is it about food for children that replaces that sort of thing? I mean, is it about engagement is it the sort of the the vicariousness of somebody else's pleasure i think that's exactly it it's about pleasure it's about senses about taste touch smell sight it's all all the senses come together when you're when you're eating and at, at every point in my in my all of my books at, at really important moments of connection or or fear there's always some sort of taste to it even if they're not eating there's that those tastes you feel in your mouth like when you're scared and you get that sort of tang in your mouth mm. it's really always for me about those sensory experiences and often it's expressed through food wow so you've come from a sort of more magical realism in children's books to a very real story uh, there's nothing magical about this story is it give us a little taste of what it's all about so it is based on historical events in 1617 on a remote Norwegian island called Vardja. There was a storm and it was Christmas Eve so all the men were out fishing and 40 fishermen perished in this storm that was, as eyewitnesses said, as if it was loosened from a bag. So it was a really sudden, violent storm. And then three years later, this island became the site of Scandinavia's worst witch trials. So my novel sort of looks at these two historical events but more it looks at the gap between them because I think as a novelist you're always looking for a gap, for a silence that you can write into and really own and make your own. And so that's what I'm trying to do in The Mercies. Food isn't a principal player in it, but it provides the moments that bind. And it is that the looseness, actually, to use that word again, of all the relationships that's so fascinating. A lot of the women are all fighting for their own emotional survival. And that means that they don't really bond. Uh, Let's take your first food moment uh, to look at that moment when Maren, we would read it as Maren, but it's it's Maren. (laughs) Yes. She goes out to catch the fish herself, something that women had never done. Um, And I'm going to ask you to read the first little bit of it, and then we'll talk about the the food moment. Maren's breath has a song to it, a wheeze she can feel tracing down her lungs and bringing up stale air, tasting like dust. Her hair is dripping sweat and sea spray down the back of her coat, face numb already, lips cracking around her foul breath. It is no wonder that the men kept their beards long. With her bare face, she feels as unsuited to the sea as a newborn. Tell us how you first of all did the research for that moment. I've actually always been strangely fascinated 
by fish. <laughs> Sounds like a strange thing, but one of my earliest food memories is my grandparents live in North Norfolk, right on the coast. One of my earliest food memories is going to the local fishmonger, and we used to buy rainbow trout and various different kinds of fish. And I always had to have fish with eyes. I was very specific to my mum that I don't want a fillet of fish; I want a fish with eyes. And I think it's really important to to have that connection to your food and to know where it comes from and to. Respect the fish that has landed on your plate, and I was always just so fascinated by they they sort of they gut it in front of you, and and it sounds macabre, but I think a lot of children they do have that fascination with with how things actually are and those inner workings that maybe as we grow into adults we become more squeamish about. So when I was coming to write this scene, I and since then I've been fishing in places like Tenerife and. I found the brutality of it very confronting.、Um, I'm eating less and less meat and less and less fish, and I think it's it was really important for me to see what's lost in that transaction. And obviously, in the world of the Mercies in the 1600s, fish was their main source of food. They had to do this, but that doesn't stop Marin from feeling queasy about it. And she sort of looks to the leader of who sort of emerges, the leader of the women, Kirsten, to show her what to do. And and Kirsten is actually quite kind because a lot of fishermen leave the fish sort of flapping and suffocating in the air, but Kirsten whacks them over the head, and that's exactly what Marin does. And she sort of feels this release, this kind of a pity for the fish, but also a pride in herself for providing for herself and for her fellow villagers. Yes, I mean it's very brutal. I mean, do you want to read that little bit of it? Aside from the scray and other whitefish fished for torfisk, there are herring neat and silver as needles, and salmon that thrash until Kirsten picks them up one by one and smashes their heads over the sides of the boat. Edna shrinks back, but Marin cheers with the others. The other net is nearly as full. A single redfish thrashes bewildered amongst cod. Marin lifts it almost tenderly, takes firm grasp of its tail. The snap of its head against the boat sends a thrill through her aching belly. It says a massive amount about Marin, doesn't it? She is the character who is the most, probably the most sensitive, and therefore most alone, until the arrival of Ursa. Tell us about Ursa. So Ursa is very different from anyone. When she enters the narrative, we're about a quarter of the way through, and. I always think of Ursa as a breath of fresh air in the book because you've sort of you've entered this very highly tense, claustrophobic, bleak、um, place in the narrative. The women have lost all their men. They're struggling, as you said earlier, with the aftereffects of trauma, and suddenly we're in this totally different world. We're in a drawing room in Bergen, in South Norway, about as far from Vardia as you can get. And Ursa is the daughter of a. Ship owner who has fallen on hard times after his wife's death, and so they're grieving in their own way as well. But they have sort of all the trappings of comfort.、Um, Ursa's sister Agnet is is ill, but she's being cared for, particularly by Ursa, and they're well fed. Food doesn't really cross Ursa's mind because it's there; it's always there. And I think that what it's not so much that in、um, In Vardja, they're not thinking about food. It's just there's such a lack of it; they kind of can't allow themselves to go there. Whereas Ursa takes it completely for granted. She's got a servant, and so on. And so, in she's she's more akin. I I saw a lot of 
of a contemporary a woman like I might be in that situation. I sort of used to her comforts, used to being well fed. She's very plump. She's very plenty. And then when you stand her, eventually when Ursa and Marin meet and you stand them next to each other, there's sort of this very tall, skinny, emaciated, essentially woman, and then this this woman of plenty who's been sort of brought up milk and honey existence, and they collide in the most beautiful way I really loved setting them up against each other yeah and there's a journey from where she is in Bergen to where she is in Vardia and it is that journey where she is literally ripped out of her comfort zone uh, and all those wonderful you know the plumpness the softness the sensitivities actually become a disability on that journey and there's a wonderful moment which is your second food moment where she shares a moment with the captain who is, you could feel that he's the only attractive man that she will ever meet, let's be honest. <laughs> Do you want to read that bit from page 88? Yes. I love him. Yes, I love him as well. <laughs> Fancied him. I know. Well, I think when she goes back on the boat, they have an affair. Oh, That's what I think. Um, which sector? So, from... Um, he tamps, tamps out of the yeah. pipe. He tamps out the pipe, pulls another pouch from another pocket, loosens the drawstring and holds it out to her. Aniseed? What is it? A herbal seed from Asia. It's sweet. Ursa holds out her palm and he tips a small greenish seed onto it. When she bites into it, it's bitter and she grimaces. Captain Leifson laughs. You're meant to suck upon it. See? He places one in his mouth. His cheeks hollow in. Ursa turns to spit away the seed into her palm, throws it over the back of the ship. The captain gives her another and she sucks very aware of his eyes upon her mouth. Very sensual stuff, isn't it? And it's because it's not available to her. That's what's so exciting about it. And also that we know that she is journeying into somewhere that is incredibly claustrophobic, terribly ascetic. There is no pleasure to be found in the place that she's going to, although she doesn't know it. She's about, what, 15 or something, isn't she? She's she's 18 at the beginning of the journey and and she sort of ages into 19. So she's a couple of years, but she could be a 15-year-old, to be honest. She's, she's very, very naive. naive. She's exactly. very, very naive. And what happens on the island is all about that naivety. She's desperate. She's had a sense of tenderness just from this moment with Aniseed. It's wonderfully powerful, that moment. And it rouses something in her. It awakens something in her that she then needs to sate. Tell us how that happens and why it's so important for the story which is ultimately about the burning of witches yes so with Ursa her journey arc was really interesting to me because she could have just stayed this sort of soft influence and she becomes a friend to Marin and she could have sort of acted as a foil to Marin's change but really Ursa goes through an even greater transformation than the Marin does and and I think what the aniseed does is it it makes her realise that the world is so much bigger than anything that she's been allowed to experience in Bergen. She's had this very protected life and and suddenly this, this taste in her mouth that she's never, ever known, never even imagined existed. And that's how I feel when I travel and I taste something that I've not encountered before. It's it's really exciting. It's like this is something that that people have always had in their lives and and it's this point of connection and difference and it's everything that's wonderful about different cultures I think can be expressed through food and then Ursa finds her way to um, to Vajra and when her and Marin become friends one of the first things she does is she shares 
this aniseed because she remembered the surprise and the joy of it with Captain Leifson and she wants to again pass that on she's a very generous person she's a very kind person because she's never had to want for anything and 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 Vajja is the first place that she'll experience want that she'll experience true hunger that she'll experience true struggle um and so she really goes through the ringer and but manages to stay a kind person and that's something I really love about her. And that moment with the aniseed where Ursa shares the aniseed uh, with Marin actually sort of mirrors that moment that she had with Leeson, that where she, she sees Leeson as the exotic, the other, the journeying, the man who has tasted Asia and Marin sees Ursa as this exotic creature who's come from another land and that sort of passing it on is a, is a very beautiful moment. The the intimate relationship between Ursa and Marin is is necessary largely because of the voluptuousness of Ursa desperately needs to press flesh. Marin is a much more she's a thin, hard, wiry character, isn't she? There's something there about vulnerability. There are no men to protect them in this very harsh environment, versus the need for intimacy how did you balance that you did it brilliantly i won't tell listeners what happens what were you trying to say there i'm trying to say two very different things for two very different women because they do have this connection that binds them and it's interesting you hit the nail on the head exactly so marin's is this very hard externally person but she's very soft inside and ursa's very soft on the outside and she's got this core of steel she really learns her own strength in this book and then, so the, the the intimacy that forms them, Marin is just obsessed with the way that Ursa looks. She's never seen something so beautiful. Like, literally, just she, Ursa is beautiful, but she's also representative of everything Marin has never seen. She's wearing this extraordinary dress made of this extraordinary fabric. She's got so much body. She takes up so much space in the world in a way that women just never have in Vajra, or men, because they're all on the point of starvation. So she's just an exotic rare creature to Marin and she instantly falls a little bit in love with her she's just you know I think when you see a, a celebrity on the red carpet I was watching the the BAFTAs and Florence Pugh came around the, down the red carpet I was like whoa she looks amazing <laughs> and and you know I think that that women as women we do that we we look at each other's bodies and and it's really nice now I think we're looking at each other's bodies less as competition and more as celebrating each other and 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 Marin very much looks at, at Ursa as this beautiful voluptuous thing and then Ursula looks at Marin and sees all the bits that she's missing, sees all where are her hips, where are her breasts, like where where are her where are some of her teeth? And 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 she she sort of wants to to take her up and, and look after her because to her thinness means illness. Um, because her sister is ill and, and can't keep solid foods down and, and so to her she wants to nurse her and they come from kind of problematic those problematic standpoints of just judging them each other by appearances and then they grow to see that what's truly in the, behind the way that they look because she hasn't landed on this island into a warm uh, sense of companionship amongst these women these women are hard women aren't they and it is because they have had everything taken from them they have to fight for their own survival their emotional survival as we said before but they're also worried about what she represents exactly i think 
When they arrive, so she arrives with her new husband and they have not really got to know each other on the journey and they're, they're still very much two separate people. They're not a unit. And I think the women sense this and they are really drawn to Absalom Cornett, who's her husband, a Scottish commissioner being brought in to sort of bring the women under the church's powerful sort of power like a again. missionary, isn't he? Exactly. And, and, and he's, he's, he's very much there to instill a new, uh, the old kind of order and break up the, the new order that they have created with their, their being self-sufficient with fishing and so on. And so I think the women, they see that they're two separate people and they see Ursa as an enemy at the same time as they see Absalom as a saviour. And that's not a blanket judgment. They're, these women are not sort of one amorphous mass. They've, they really they're struggling with themselves with their own grief but they have taught, formed two factions there are the the church women um and then there are the women who think that they should stay as they are and self-sufficient and continue to fish and not go back to how things were before and so i think poor Ursa sort of she walks into this kind of a trap really that she's never going to be liked and accepted by these women the way that she looks our first sight of her she looks absurd to them in what she's wearing and how she is she doesn't even have a coat and and so I think that Marin alone has tenderness for her in that moment and feels sorry for her because she sees Ursa as a person apart in the same way that Marin herself feels herself to be yeah there's a theme of belonging isn't there there's this need to not belong in order to survive but actually we are tribal and everybody has to work together to to eat for a start uh the absurdity of the the, the costuming of of Ursa is really interesting you know a yellow dress that nobody would wear but it becomes a sort of a symbol doesn't it um a sign of of the plenty that you talk about and something that they would never have and it is utterly inappropriate and it is that sort of much more ascetic reality that binds them with the making of the flatbread which is your third food moment tell us about that moment I love this scene and I was really worried when I was writing it that it would be cut down uh, quite brutally because I thought that the, the emphasis would be on pace. But my, luckily, my eight wonderful editor, Sophie Jonathan, recognised that this is a real important point and the first real moment of connection and togetherness. And in fact, the first moment of connection togetherness, not only in the book, but for these two characters in their lives, that they've had this sort of this deep friendship. Ursa has it with her sister to an extent, but but this is a stranger and she's never had to make a friend before. And Marin has never made a friend before. For both of them, they exist within the bubbles of their families and of course, the storm has has torn the, that safety apart for Marin, and so she has had to interact with with the other villagers. But she's never had someone her own age who she can just connect with. And so I think, whilst they are teacher student, Marin is teaching Ursa how to how to make this. They are equals and they are companions. And it was a real. I sort of I I made flatbread myself. I I love baking it, but this was very different from the sort of baking I usually do. Just to feel that the tactile moments, the moments where you feel the flower shift, and and in those moments was able to then write how their relationship is starting to shift. As you say, they're binding literally, and and as as all these ingredients are coming together, there's something more that's being bound and being made 
into one complete thing so and of course the thing about flatbread is that you know it's biblical isn't it it is there is no time for bread to rise which is why it's always the food of the poor people the nomads the diaspora they are people who haven't got very much in their lives yet it symbolizes sustenance Ursula makes tea in the way that Marin makes flatbread they're both absolute essentials, but they mean completely different things to the other. Do you want to read a little bit of it? Page 161. It is the simplest of tasks, but she has not been watched doing it before, and she can feel Marin's eyes upon her just as she had in Kirk. It makes her stand a little straighter, take the cups from their shelf with greater care, flourish a little with the leaves as she drops them to boil. She enjoys the woman's attention upon her, It doesn't feel like malice, as though she is watching for her to make a mistake, but rather more like care, the way Siv would supervise Ursa with her needlework. And then, of course, Ursa has that that wonderful thing to offer with the tea and the tea ceremony. And this is, you know, very early 1600s, yet the tea ceremony is still has its moment as it has through history. What kind of, how did you find out about these? Where was the research? Well, initially, I had them drinking tea left, right and centre. And then I thought, oh, I better check that they had tea. They did not have tea (laughs) on this Arctic Circle island. It might surprise you to note. So they drank small beer and, and things like that. So I had... I did feel it was important for Ursa to have something she could do that she she felt she was capable of offering. So I did decide for her to bring some tea leaves with her <laughs> uh, from her that her father has sort of taken as in lieu of payment um, as part of his his ship owning business. So that is something that she feels she can offer Marin, and yeah. I think that that's a nice thing for her to have. Yeah, and, and very appropriate. You know, it is all about this sharing and and friendship built over the sharing. And then the reality hits Ursa that they live off the land. And there's this moment where she goes into the storeroom and she finds the reindeer. Let's have a read of that one. She hesitates a moment before moving further into the store and out of Marin's sight. She sees the sway of the slaughtered reindeer, their bodies dark red and sinewy. They will be gamey now, rich and salty. She should offer to teach her how to butcher but perhaps that is too much too soon. There's a scraping sound and Ursa comes back out, rolling a barrel before her, flinching as the swing of a carcass brings it brushing against her. She pulls the door closed behind her, lips a thin line, and rolls the barrel to the table, writing it and resting her palms upon it. From that point, Ursa realises that the, the gap widens while the friendship solidifies, but Ursa is the enemy she doesn't want to be but she represents the enemy and your last food moment takes us right into the center of where how food describes the the difference between them so let's talk a little bit about ursa's horrible husband and he's not even horrible he's just another of these naives he's been caught up in a world in every in any other situation he would be further characterized but he's stiff he's you know he's trying so hard to be something but he is bound by convention tell us how you see him i'm so glad you said that because it was so important for me not to have cut out villains because there are very few truly evil people and there and there is an evil person in this book but it is not absalom cornet it is not ursa's husband you're absolutely right that he's come 
from very humble beginnings and the first place that he ever felt warm and safe was in a church and so he became a servant of the church because he wasn't high born enough to be um, a minister so he becomes a servant of the church doing the lord's work which just so happens to include hunting witches and so he believes that he's rooting out this this evil from the world and that he's keeping people safe and he has within him this this anger this resentment towards his humble beginnings and he feels like a pretender in this world and all he wants is to solidify his position and to be impressive he wants Ursa to be impressed by him she wants her to love him she wants he wants her to support him and her kindness that i that i so love about her is what stops that connection from forming is so there are points in the book where he's so tender towards her and he he's reaching for her and he sees her as a husband would see a wife even now as a as a partner as a companion and then there are other points when as you say his upbringing takes over and he has this brutality to him and and i think that that's one of the scariest things that you grow up realizing there aren't just evil people there are good people do evil things mm-hmm. and and i think that's something i was really playing with this in this book at at this time of me too and and things that it's so hard to spot the the monsters because they look like your brother your father you know they look like your husband so mm. i think that that is a very scary lesson for us who has no knowledge of men to learn yeah they are invited to the big house um which is where the banquet happens that actually i think exemplifies that the difference between the two of them they are feasting he is feasting disgustingly and she sees that and she hates him for it and she sees food for the first time in however long it is since she's left Bergen her home but at the same time it, it absolutely represents vulgarity it represents uh, opulence and over over the top behavior it's so distanced from the sensitivity that she's found through making the flatbread for example with Marin let's read that last food moment so Ursa and Absalom have really settled into their lives in Vardia in some ways, um, but then Lensman Cunningham arrives and he is essentially a lord. He's been put in charge of the whole of Finnmark. It's a vast, ungoverned, previously ungoverned area at the north um, of Norway and he's been placed there by the king, direct orders by the king, um, to bring this area of the country more closely under under Christian control. And he brings with him his, his wife, who is a flighty um, sort of, she seems very fey, but actually she's incredibly sharp, very clever, and she sort of blunted her mind because she has to, um, to, to, to be around this, this man. And he is the true evil. Um, he is the true driving force behind this book. He's, he's, um, sadistic and he is, uh, his time in the military was sort of characterized by order and, and discipline. And, um, he runs his house like he runs his ship. Uh, except with a, a feast. He sort of welcomes Ursa and Absalom into his home with this feast. And you get the sense that they eat like this often. And it was strange even for me, who loves their food, loves indulgence, to write this scene after being in the in the hard world that, that Marin has, has sort of had to exist in and scrape by even before her father died in the storm. And then to be placed at this dinner table with this with this true monster of a man and watch him gorge himself. Yeah, and so just read a little bit about how Cunningham actually eats because it does absolutely epitomise what is disgusting about him. So here at this point... 
they're talking about Ursa's mother. What does she think of you living up here? He is now mashing the fish flat on a slice of bread with the back of his fork. It pulps and glints. Ursa feels nauseous. She's dead, interjects Absalom, but it isn't done to save her, only to get a foot in the conversation. I am sorry, says Kristen, moving her hand from Ursa's and taking up the plate. Herring? Ursa takes some, the jelly sliding through the tines of her fork and soaking the rye bread. They chew and Fan brings a small platter of sliced onions. These are to come out with the fish next time, says Kristen. Fan bobs, brings round a flagon of honey-coloured liquid and pours each of them a large glass, though the akavit is still on the table, Absalom's second glass full and untouched. And Absalom can't quite take part. He's very uncomfortable in this environment. Actually, it's more something that Ursa has seen before, but her version of a dinner party at her parents has been much gentler and much more uh, refined. What are you trying to convey with the food? I think I'm trying to make it monstrous because there is nothing disgusting about jellied herring. I love jellied herring. And and when I visited Vajio, I ate wonderful food. All the food that they eat here is food that is still eaten and enjoyed in Norway. And so what I'm not trying to do is, is to other the food and create a horror around this culture. What I am trying to do is make an everyday thing seem disgusting, to seem it's the inequality that makes it so brutal. And suddenly Ursa, all she can see is the anatomy of eating she's not enjoying it she's not got that connection that she's had um, to her food since she came to live in Vajja and she's not got the nostalgia that she remembers from her childhood dinners she's just sitting there and it's as if the people are projecting themselves into the food and suddenly it's all too much the scent like the her senses are so heightened in this dinner party I felt nauseous sitting and, and writing it because I could really feel the the way that that these people are just the way they're talking about the death of her mother the way that there's such unkindness there and 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 brutality and so I wanted to introduce that her way of seeing them and the way they're eating is that it's equaled in that yeah and we all want to get out of that situation we all want to be out of that mansion and back in the much harder uh, environment of of, of Marin and, and her family it turns at that point it's there's no a point of no return at, at that point and it gets very very dark and we won't go into it although anybody who's ever studied anything about the burning of the witches knows that what happens and it did happen as well why did you choose this as your first subject for adult fiction this was the first story that actually truly chose me I have never had that compulsion that I read about so often in interviews where an author says it just came and I just had I just had to write it I've always loved writing my stories but I've always had to sit down and think right what do I want this story to be like if it's magical realism what are the rules of the world whereas this I first came to it um, through an artwork by Louise Bourgeois it's this metal chair on fire and it was her last major installation it's in Vajja as part of a memorial to these witches and I started reading and realized how little there was about this trial no one I talked to has heard of it and it was just extraordinary to me that 91 men and women could lose their lives and it's not even a flicker in in our in our mind's eye when we think about witch trials when we think about history so 
it was like I had to shine this light on that dark chapter. I had to go in and, and imagine. And Marin just came to me. She just, it genuinely was in a dream. This woman climbing down to this whale, which is the very first scene, just came to me and I woke up and I started writing and it was like having a fever. I felt possessed and... I doubt it's an experience that will happen to me many times in my life, but I'm so glad that it did and that this was the book that came out. Happened to J.K. Rowling, look at her. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) It's also the breakdown of society, the the society that Ursa and Myron have have created, the friendship, the, the, the genuine friendship, and it is where the tribes kind of become more polarised. Um, was that something that, I mean, we're looking at an island nation, we're looking at divisions, uh, it was set against Brexit. I mean, any of those thoughts? <laughs> I think as a writer, you ha- you exist in the world and you are engaging with culture, you are engaging with everything around you. The job of a writer is to keep your eyes, your ears and your heart open. And I was utterly bereft during these last three years and I'm sure I will continue to be utterly bereft and the way that I respond to that is I use that I use my sadness I use my anger and I try and write the world as I see it and I try and have my characters act my good characters act in a way that I would wish the world to be and for my bad characters not to be villains but for them to maybe be flawed in their thinking and to try and understand and have empathy with them because you're never going to win hearts and minds by sort of hammering home oh this person's just evil but as as I always say you know the monsters are among us and any of us is capable of, of of terrible things and you can never judge someone and their decisions until you know their story so I do try and have empathy however angry I am and writing really helps me to do that there's something I mean it's very feminist um, obviously, because the women are endlessly inventive, or some of the women are endlessly inventive. They are the ones who are punished. Um, they are terrified of each other, yet they are brave. You bring out everything that women are, but you set it against the ultimate test, which is against men and church. Women were never going to win that one. No, I think it's that ultimate power. And, and I think, you know, when we when we look at women even now, women who have call themselves feminist and yet they can act in a way that is against the interests of women. Being in, being in power is inherently problematic. And I think it's very hard to use your power purely for good. So someone like Torrell, who's a character who very much goes onto the side of the church, she is just trying to deal with her grief as best she can. And it makes her a demon. It makes her um, an accuser. And ultimately, it does. writing this book made me question what side of history I would fall on. Would I try and protect my family by joining the accusers or would I die for what I, you know, where would I put my money where my mouth is, my life where my mouth is, and would I die for the truth? And, and it really is confronting, to put it in such blunt terms. And this is a question that people throughout history are continuing to have to make. And so that's definitely something that was forefront in my mind, writing The Mercies.